Our second uh, scripture passage is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man who comes after do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The word of the Lord. Here again, Solomon's purpose in writing Ecclesiastes, which we've been on for two weeks and we'll be on through the end of Lent. This is Solomon's goal, his aim, what he's after. Verse 13 of chapter one, we read it two weeks ago. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Solomon, as we've talked about here the past few weeks, is asking the big questions. Does it matter? The purpose question, the why question, do I matter? Identity, who am I? These are the big questions. Does it matter? Do I matter? Does life matter? Do I matter? Who am I? Why am I here? Now, as we've also talked about the past couple of weeks, the philosophers, starting in Nietzsche, moving on to the later half of the 20th century, even to today, have said this, you cannot prove truth or God or what is good or right by observation alone. Hume said it 100 years before that, you can say what is, describe what is, but not what ought to be or what we ought to do. 
The scientific endeavor, reason, intellect, logic, observation, can say what is but what not, not what ought, and therefore it cannot prove that there is a God. And built into this is the beginning and ending question, right? A good philosopher will acknowledge there is no proof of design or intention, and there's no proof of destiny, something after this life. There's no creator, and there is no eternity. And therefore, there is no objective meaning or purpose in life. Sometimes even bleak can be funny. Calvin and Hobbes was a comic strip from years ago, and Calvin was always asking these sorts of existential questions. Here he's talking about the beginning and the ending of life and how short it is and therefore how meaningless. Let's say life is this square of the sidewalk. We're born at this crack and we die at that crack. Now we find, some, find ourselves somewhere inside the square and in the process of walking out of it. Suddenly we realize our time in here is fleeting. Is our quick experience here pointless? Does anything we say or do in here really matter? Have we done anything important? Have we been happy? Have we made the most of these precious few footsteps? If you really grasp what the philosophers are getting at, you will either be frozen in fear, or you may just jump off the edge. Of course, most of us don't go to the big questions, right? We've also talked about this. Here in America, what are we? Most of us, and I'm not saying everyone in this room, but most of us, if you just walk around America, are agnostics and we are secular. Agnostics means this. We don't know if there is a God. Sure, there might be. We're not going to say he's not here, but we can't know. We can't know who is God or which God there is. That's agnostic. Secular is the other part of us. Secular does not mean anti-religious. It actually means now. It means we live in the here and now. It's that carpe diem idea, seize the moment. All we have is the 30 or 50 or 70 years between the two cracks on the sidewalk. All we can know is what we can see, feel, touch, observe. That's it. And as a result, we actually don't ask the big questions. We are so focused on the here and now. And pretty much everything we do is given to us so quickly, so here and now, especially now. Video is on demand. Amazon Prime, you can get pretty much anything your heart can imagine within a day or two. Everything is here and now. Why would we think about life beyond the cracks? And so when we ask the meaning questions, the why questions, we're actually content with the purpose of the task at hand. Why do you go split wood and collect firewood? Well, to build a fire. I'm just thinking about the purpose of a particular activity that I'm doing. But kids, if you ever wanna get back at your parents, ask the why questions and keep going. Hey, could you bring in some firewood? Why should I? So we can build a fire. Well, why should we build a fire? Well, because it's nice and it keeps us warm. But, Dad, isn't life so short? And realistically, where's it all going? Why should we be building fires? Who's going to even see the fire 100 years from now? Does it even matter if we're warm or happy or full of joy in fireplaces? Really, Dad? If you can answer that question, I'll go get the firewood. 
mom, dad, why do you work? Well, to make money. We have to pay for things. Like the fun things we do on the weekend and vacations. Well, why do you need vacations and fun things to do on the weekend? Well, because we work so hard. We just simply look at the immediate and the now, and that's about all we come up with. So then we have to ask, why is it even important to ask the big questions? Does it matter? Do I matter? The big why questions. It's important because it answers the other questions of what is good and right? What drives our motives? What should be important in life? And behind our answers to the big questions are where we ultimately find hope and joy and peace as well as our purpose and identity, the very things that make human existence unique and fulfilling. We are walking over the past few weeks with Solomon asking the big questions. And you remember, regardless of whether Solomon believes in God, which I believe he does, during this season in his life, either because he's actually struggling with doubt and skepticism or because he's intentionally going on this road, he is playing the agnostic, secular philosopher. He's going that route. He starts off in chapter one asking the big meaning question. In chapter two, he says, I'm gonna go down a bunch of different roads. He first starts off in the pleasure road. The, what if I had everything in front of me and could taste it all? Will that be a place to find meaning? Last week we looked at that and the answer was no. So then he goes on to the next ones that we're looking at today. Is it in wisdom? Is it in toil? Is it in the good life lived wisely? Is it in the things we pursue, the things we're after and work so hard at? He says this, we're gonna look at what he says, see how it applies to us more directly, and see what the answer possibly is in the end. After I looked at pleasure, he says in verse 12, so I turned instead after pleasure, knowing that that wasn't the answer, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. I'm gonna look at living the wise life versus living the foolish life. Every culture throughout history, defines the wise life differently. They have a whole set of ideas and values that say this is what it is to be wise versus what it is to be foolish, right? I'm not going to explore what it was in Solomon's day. I just want to jump to today. And let's even jump outside of America directly to this area, almost as immediate as we can get. How might we define the wise life versus the foolish life? I would say, in just my own observations, we would say it's being a good person. Being a good person is, is the wise life. Are you a good student, good employee, good boss, good parent, good husband, good neighbor? Do you have a balanced life? You pay the bills, your yard looks pretty nice, you have some amount of self-control, your life is not a total mess. You're responsible. You're not like one of those people on reality TV. You know, you're wise, not a fool like them. So then the question is, okay, so what if that does describe you? What if you are a good dude? What if you are a great mom? And what if you're a really nice kid? Can you find meaning there? Well, Solomon's conclusion has two parts. First, on the, he asks the small question, the now question, and he answers it in verse 13. 
Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. So the immediate answer is yes. I guess in this life there is some benefit to being a good dude, a nice kid, a great mom. It's beneficial, it's pragmatic, you should do that. But when he pushes it out and expands the entire universe and says, can we find meaning and identity in being a nice guy? Then he pushes against us as well. Because he says in verses 15 to 17, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that, that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Now he's speaking about beyond this 70 years. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Both the fool and the wise die and are forgotten. Maybe not in 50 years, maybe not in 200 years, but how about a few million years? Both are forgotten. What's the difference? He moves on from wisdom to toil. And I'm going to go back to verse 3 of chapter 1, which was actually where we heard this the first time. It's the big question that's actually driving the entirety of this whole endeavor of Ecclesiastes. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This word toil is a key concept in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And behind it are ideas like work and labor, the things we work at. But really, the, the real root behind it is this idea of striving, pursuing. What is it you're actually after? It may be what you work at during your day, but what are you actually after? What are you toiling for? Solomon says, I'm going to look at all the things we pursue, all the things we work for, and ask, why? Why do we do it? Does it matter in the end? And once again, I want to jump from toil in that day to toil in our day. So I was thinking about this, trying to understand how would we define what we toil for, what do we pursue, what we are after. And at least in the D.C. area, if not all of America, in the D.C. area, it's achievement and success. That's what we're really pursuing. That's what we're after. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that the United States is a merit-based society a merit-based society, your worth is up to you. You can become something. And on top of that, we live in the D.C. area, which is a highly driven culture of very smart people who have great jobs, make a lot of money, have big houses, and they show everyone else that they do. Merit-based society, highly driven culture, we are going to be neurotically needing to be successful. And so what do we do? We start at an early age. We set goals of grades and colleges we want to get into. And then as we enter the workforce, we set career goals, make partner, head of marketing. We want to make an impact. We want to do something. We want to leave a legacy behind. But it's not okay just to be good at something in this area. You actually have to be superior. Our grades, our career, our kids must be better than the others. 
Even the meals we eat and the vacations we take have to be superior to others. Just check out Facebook. You will see that is what is put up there. See, in some places, people drink coffee, but not here. Even here, our coffee has to be superior. I just saw this picture posted on Facebook the other day of a superior latte. It is a piece of art. It makes a statement. And it tastes way better than the coffee those other rubes are drinking in other parts of the world. This is DC coffee. It is superior to others. It's just like it in any highly driven subculture, not just DC, but any urban or semi-urban area around the US. And what drives us to, to be superior, to work so hard? It, with some people in here, my guess is it's actually altruism. The things that you work at really are for a, a greater good or a cause that you're a part of, and you see the impact it can have on lives, in poverty, in people who are, who are struggling with injustices. There really is altruistic reasons to work so hard. Some of us can't help, the, the other side, some of us can't help but be successful. We're just awesome at what we do. We have that Midas touch where we can't not win. We can't not be successful. We're always the best, and we're not working so hard. We're just great. But for the rest of us who are not the most awesome or the most altruistic, my guess is what drives us is comparison. We're always competing with our peers, with one another. We're carving out space to be someone. Why is it so hard to be happy with another person's success? Why are we constantly trying to measure ourselves? Why is it that it's not okay to be happy with another person's win, with them making the team, with them getting the A, having the bigger thing? We cannot just be happy because we're always comparing in whatever area we're trying to find success. Think about it. Have you ever been anxious about being overlooked in your career? Constantly need recognition. Why? We need to know that we measure up and people realize it. And why is it that we're so anxious at times about falling short, about not succeeding, about failing? Why is it absolutely crushing to not get into the best college? Why is it so humiliating to admit that you're out of work in this area? Why is it mortifyingly embarrassing if it's your teenager who's pregnant or your teenager who's struggling with addiction? or your kid who's only taking classes at community college. Because we live comparing ourselves to one another. And it trickles down to our students. We have a, an entire region filled with stressed out high school students who must get A's, must take AP courses or IB, 
They must be in sports and in clubs and high SAT scores so they can get into the top universities. And you find this is the case even for kids who do not have tiger moms. I was in a classroom just this week, Robinson High School, where the, the teacher there, Coulter Weaver, who's speaking at our Q Commons, he's a teacher of IB psychology, had all the students sitting around. And they were actually talking about stress and stressors in this area. And one teenage girl, talking about the stress she feels like she's under to be successful, said, I feel like I have to be good at the things that I'm not even good at. It's not okay to just be good at science. You also have to be good at English. It's not okay just to be a good singer. You also have to be a good athlete. You have to be good at the things you're not even good at. It's Northern Virginia. And the kids see. They live in this D.C. area. They see the degrees that parents have, the amount of money that other people have, the houses they live in. And then they see it on TV, and they see their friends pushing it on Instagram. And it's all around. You don't have to feed it. The culture we live in, that we're a part of, is feeding it. Why are we so stressed? Why are we striving so hard? Because we're always comparing. And we're always comparing because our grades or our income, or our career status, or the success of our kids, all of these successes are where we're finding our meaning. Our work, our accomplishments define us. It gives us our identity. You might even say, it is me. I'm a great lawyer, a straight A student, a super dad. And if we're ever struggling or failing in whatever aspect that we seek success, we start to lose ourselves. We wonder, who am I? We lose our identity. And if you watch middle school kids, it begins with middle school kids who begin to lose their identity. I thought I was good at sports. I was an athlete, but I can't measure up. Okay, I'll try grades, but there's kids who are better than me. Okay, I'll try leadership aspects. Okay, there's kids who are better leaders than me. I'll try being the funny guy. We move from thing to thing to thing, starting in middle school, trying to find an identity, something we're successful at. And look, I'm not saying don't try, don't work hard. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't try to find your calling, but why? Ask the big why question. What am I searching for in this? Am I searching for meaning and identity? You see, success, like many things that we've talked about here, is an idol. It is a false god. We serve it in hopes of salvation. We seek our meaning, our identity, our joy in it. If you get in, if you make it, if you get to the top, then you'll be someone. Then you will matter. That's the mantra that's in our head, even if it's subliminal. But like any idol, it requires sacrifice to appease it, right? More hours, better grades, sacrifice our time, sacrifice relationships. And like any false god, success, even the greatest success, cannot deliver the salvation we seek in it. It cannot. 
and we all do it. Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods wrote, every human being must live for something. Something must capture our imaginations, our heart's fundamental allegiance and hope. And if it's success and achievement, you may get to the top and you will be enslaved and dissatisfied. Solomon realized this. His conclusion on this whole toil thing, all the things we pursue, we see it in verse 20 and 21. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. There's no difference, he says, between being an absolute failure and being a huge success. Why? Because of death. We all die and it's forgotten. And you may say, like, you know, there are people, right, who they have an impact. Their kids remember what a great parent they were. And maybe even it passes on down to the grandkids who remember how great grandfather was. Or in your career, you might create a legacy. You might start something. You might have an impact like democracy was founded in your country because of you. But in the grand scheme of things, you know that there was 13 billion years before humanity? If the scientists are right, and someday long after the sun burns up, it'll be 13 billion years after, and then who's going to remember the difference between Thomas Jefferson and a nobody slave? Who's going to remember the difference between a mask murderer and Mother Teresa? Solomon had achieved the greatest level you could possibly achieve. He was the wisest, most successful man in existence in his day and age. And yet he is driven to despair. He says in verse 22 and 23, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is a vanity. You've heard me quote it before, but Tom Brady was interviewed after his third Super Bowl on 60 Minutes. He had just won his third Super Bowl. He had a multi-million dollar contract, and he was dating a supermodel, now his wife. Steve Croft asked him about this, and his basic conclusion was, I thought that if I got all of this, that I would have achieved something. But he wonders, there's got to be more than this. I hope there's more than this. He's asking, is this all there is? He is a Super Bowl champion worth millions of dollars dating a supermodel. He is as successful as he could possibly ever have dreamed of. He's at the highest peak of peaks. And he says there's got to be more than this. Are you going to be better than him? Because if you are, you will probably come to the same conclusion. But Solomon does not leave us there. He gives us a hint, a little reprieve from all of this. Well, pretty heavy stuff, right? It's not very fun to talk about. 
But we see it in verse 24 to 26. As he, he opens up and gives us a picture of God. It's, it's one of these few windows we get before the end of the book. It says, okay, here's my conclusion on this whole thing. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Okay, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Wait a minute, he's just inserted God into this thing. It's nothing better than to eat or drink and find enjoyment in your work, but the only way to do that is with God. For to the one who pleases him, pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy in life. To the one who pleases God, there is the possibility of joy in this life. So how do you please God? I guess you gotta be a good person, pretty religious. Make sure your life's in order, then you will please God. Jesus gives us a different story in the gospel. John chapter six. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 and it's the next day. The crowds follow him because they think, hey, Jesus gave us free food yesterday. Let's follow him around and let's get some more free food today. And then Jesus engages them in a little conversation that they're not really sure where this is going, but they're willing to stick with it because they think there's going to be some bread at the end of it. Jesus says to them in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for the food that perishes. Now notice if we're going to take Ecclesiastes at its core, Everything that you can possibly work for in this life will perish. There is nothing you can put at the end of that success achievement that will not in the end disappear or be forgotten. So what's left to work for, Jesus? Work for that which, don't work for that which perishes. Everything perishes. What must we do, they say, to do the works of God? Which commandment should we follow? How many times should we go to synagogue? How much should we put in the offering basket? Jesus, tell us. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, that you believe in me, the one sent from God. Think about the reversal that's going on there. We try to find our meaning and our identity in our work. And whatever it is that we pursue, the things we're after, Jesus says, this is the work, to believe in my work. The work that gives meaning and identity is the work that was done for us in Jesus Christ. When he was hanging on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. It is finished. Everything that needs to be accomplished Everything that needs to be done, the only success in the world that really matters is it is finished. What, what do you really need? You and I need to be reconciled to God because we are sinners. We need to know our maker so we can understand our purpose. We need to have a hope of eternity so that the cracks on the sidewalk are not all that there is. And Jesus says all of that is finished. It's finished. Why can Solomon say? 
It's those who please God, who enjoy food and work. Because those who please God have put their trust in God and their hearts are changed and they begin to desire what God desires. And success is no longer the God. God is. What you worship is where you will find your joy. Is what you worship big enough? All of our toil, our striving, our goals, our pursuits, is deep inside of us we have a hunger. We think it's this hunger to succeed, to be winners, to be noticed, to be achievers. But underneath that is actually a hunger for purpose. It's a hunger for meaning, to know who I am and why I'm here. Does it matter and do I matter? Being good and successful even being the best at whatever it is that you're pursuing is not big enough to meet the insatiable hunger for meaning and identity. We need to believe that God has made us and has a purpose for our lives and that our identity is found in him, not in our grades, not in how big our company is, not in our bank account, that our identity is in him by grace. What satisfies us? Jesus said it. In verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The hard thing is to believe that we actually need Jesus more than we need to be the best. Let's pray. Jesus, so often we find our purpose in our most recent achievements. We define our identity by what we do well. Help us to rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross, what he accomplished and wants to apply to us. And so transform our desires, our priorities, our hopes, and take away our fears. That we might know who we are because you have made us and you have saved us. Amen.
Thank you.